Our scripture passage for today is found in James chapter 2 as we continue to look at the book of James together, verses 14 through 26. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn and read along as I read aloud from God's Word. <clears throat> James two fourteen through 26. <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and without daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I have done. <clears throat> you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? <clears throat> Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. <clears throat> In the same way was not Ra even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we come together to examine your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that we might understand your word clearly, and that your word which is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword might have its work upon our lives. Because you have never given your word, Lord, that it might be a dead book, but instead partaking of the fullness of your nature might accomplish that work of piercing our hearts, causing us to see where we are wrong, and causing us through your power to strive for holiness. We pray you to accomplish this work as we look at your word I pray that my words, Lord, might be faithful to your word, because your word alone is holy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned when we began the study of the book of James, <clears throat> James, the book, was not a popular book with Martin Luther, the Reformer, back in the 1500s. And the reason for the unpopularity of this book with Martin Luther can best be summarized in the passage that we are looking at this morning. Now, Martin Luther came to know Jesus Christ out of an environment where he had tried with all of his might to live up to the laws that the church and the Bible gave him and to find salvation by doing, doing, doing. If it was something that was supposed to be good and by which you were to gain salvation, Martin Luther did it. Penances, fasting, all kinds of self-denial and self-sacrifice, Martin Luther did. Then as he studied God's Word, and in particular the book of Romans, <clears throat> he came to the conclusion 
which people come to as they study God's word, that salvation is by faith alone. By faith alone. You should gain access to Jesus Christ through believing in him only, not through doing good works. And so it's not surprising that Martin Luther, coming from a background where he believed that the way to salvation was by doing all these good things, would come upon a book like James, inspired as well as Romans by the Holy Spirit, and in reaction to the fact that it was dealing with some of the things he had dealt with before he came to Christ, that he would have a hard time with it. Because Scripture is God's way of keeping us on the narrow path. Scripture is not God's way of giving us a shotgun approach, but instead a rifle approach. And what is necessary for you and me to stay on the narrow path is that we have borders on either side. There need to be barriers up on either side that we can look at and gauge where we're going. We need to be able to look on the left. For instance, I'll put it in allegorical terms. We need to be able to look on the left and find that hedge up there that says, the salvation is by faith alone. And we need to be able to judge that and continue to walk straight according to that. We need to be able to look on the right as well and see the hedge up that says that if there are no deeds, then there is no faith. So looking at these two things, we will maintain a center course down the narrow path. Now there's a tendency in our world today and... to look at a specific thing in judging whether or not a person is a Christian. Now, perhaps you have looked at this and seen this in our culture and not liked it. Perhaps you have often said to yourself, the message of this passage here is what I wish all Christians would understand. Because I look around and I so often see Christians, people who claim to be Christians, and they're doing whatever they please. They're doing things that would disgrace a non-Christian. How can that be? And so perhaps as you and I look at this passage, and we look at the culture that we're in, and we look at organized religion, Christianity specifically, we see that the great emphasis is placed upon what is called making decisions for Christ. Making decisions for Christ. This is what is involved in revival meetings. This is what is involved in things like altar calls and all of these sorts of things. Because the point that occurs when people make a decision for Christ is in their heart or through their mouth they say, I trust in Jesus Christ. I realize I'm a sinner. I need salvation through Him alone. Now again, we have this path on which there is on this side... Salvation is by faith alone. And on this side, there is the hedge that says, if there are no deeds, then there is no real faith. So we look at what is called making a decision for Jesus Christ. And we see that it so happens, happens so frequently in our country and throughout the world, that people are counted as going forward in a revival, for instance. 
A thousand people came to know Christ through this. Ten thousand. Whatever the number. Two, one, whatever the number. What happens next? What happens next? That is the message that James is talking about. Now, if you remember anything about the parables that Jesus spoke, specifically the one regarding the different soils on which the seed was scattered, four different soils, only one of those soils did the seed fall on and it went down into good soil and it grew and it came up and it didn't die, it produced fruit, right? All of the other soils, the seed was a wash. It was gone. Nothing happened. Well, something happened, but the fruit never came out. And so what this passage here is talking about is what happens after a decision for Christ is made and announced. <clears throat> what happens? Is there something that happens next? Because as we look at this passage, we realize if the decision for Christ if the statement of faith in Jesus Christ is genuine, then something has to happen next. Because if it doesn't happen next, the statement was not genuine. Now, why in the world is James presenting this message to believers in a culture, in a time, when it wasn't a popular thing to present oneself as a Christian? In a time when in various and sundry places there was persecution of Christians. Well, you think to yourself, who in the world would want to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, but not be genuine? You'd just be asking for trouble, right? <clears throat> be like going out and standing out in the street, waiting for a car to come and run you down. Unless you were serious about it, you'd better not do it. <clears throat> Gus, one of Gus's stories about the craziness of New York is when he was downtown. <clears throat> he remembers being in the center of New York and all of a sudden he heard this horrendous screeching of cars and he looked and he saw a man had gone out in the middle of the main street and lay down. Just boom, right down. Now you don't do that kind of thing unless you're serious. And so we ask ourselves, why in the world is James written to Christians scattered throughout the world in many places in which there was persecution of Christians? Why is he even talking about fake believers? <clears throat> it could be various and sundry different reasons that he's presenting this message to them. One of the possibilities is, well, one of the certainties is that what we find in this passage here is a way of examining our lives to see if our statement is matched by our deeds. And that's the first thing we need to realize from this passage. That this passage is not a stick to take home <laughs> to beat people over the head with. Ah, I see it says here. You can say all you want, but if you don't do it, boom, you're not it. Ha. <laughs> Sticks are useful sometimes. <laughs> we tend to use them. <clears throat> the first thing that this passage needs to do is to be used as a magnifying glass. To look at our own lives. If you can look at yourself, I, you can look at parts of yourself with a magnifying glass. We need it as a magnifying glass to look into our souls, our hearts. Is what I say what I do? Is what I say what I do? And furthermore, I believe that this passage is important. And it needs to be proclaimed by Christians. 
Because we live in a world in which it is too easy for people to say, yes, I'm a Christian. There are benefits in claiming you're a Christian. We see that. We see that there are many charlatans who use the fact that they say they are Christians to take advantage of other people. We see that even though our, our country is no longer, I believe, a Christian nation, the leaders of our country continue to claim that they are Christians. And so what that tells us is that there is popularity, there is benefit in claiming to be a Christian in our culture. And so we as Christians need to be going forth and saying, ah, but wait a minute. The statement that you trust in Jesus Christ is no proof. It is no proof. We need to realize that because it is important in many instances that we are able to have a measuring stick, first of all, to measure our own lives, but then as well to measure the lives of those around us. Because we will frequently come into contact with people who don't trust in Christ and they are dreadfully confused because they see other people who claim to be Christians and are living rotten, stinky, lousy lives with no concern for anyone and certainly no concern with God's standards. And so the people who don't know Christ are confused and they say, well, is this what a Christian is? And you and I can say, wait. We're told in Scripture that what you say is not necessarily what you are. Now, we all know that in so many ways. But this passage is telling us that explicitly. <clears throat> what this passage is telling us <clears throat> is that many people say many things. Many people say many things. But words don't count. It's actions that tell whether or not the words are true. It is actions that tell whether or not the words are true. The example we have here in this passage is this. Say a person goes out and sees some other people who are in need of the basics. Food, clothing. Are in desperate straits. And that person says, oh, I see, I see. You have such great and serious needs. And I feel so badly for you. I'll think of you. I'll pray for you. Be warm. Be well fed. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Goes right on out and home. Are those words genuine? Are they genuine? If you were in the place of the person who had those needs, what would you say? No. That person doesn't care for me no matter how much he says it. He doesn't care for me. Now, I think James has a twofold purpose in this year. I think his first purpose is to cause us to turn that around and look at what we say to Jesus. What do you and I say to Jesus? Do we say, I love you? I want to honor you. I want to do what you want. And then turn around and ignore him entirely. Or do we say, I love you, and do what he says? Second purpose is the explicit one that is given to us. <clears throat> we must do what we say we think. If we say, I'm concerned for you, and if we have a practical means of putting that concern into action, then we are 
Liars. That's the word for it. We're liars if we don't do something. We can speak all we want. Now, that is a message that we've been through several times already because it's cropped up several times in the book of James. And it'll crop up in a large way later in the book. But there is a recurring theme throughout the book, which is this. Our tongues can be used for many wonderful purposes and they can be used for many lousy purposes. They can speak the truth and they can speak lies. What is specifically being addressed here (coughs) is the fact that it is easy for human tongues to be used to speak lies about faith. (coughs) So we need to recognize that actions are the yardstick to measure statements of faith. Now, step back a minute with me and look at that comment, statements of faith. As we look at this passage, we realize that it's a given. The people who trust in Christ do make statements of faith. And so, as we would find throughout the book of James and elsewhere in Scripture, we need to be using our tongues, if we trust in Christ, to say, I believe in Him. I trust in Him, I love Him, I honor Him, I worship Him. We need to use our tongues. We need to be saying, I love Christ, I honor Him, I worship Him. But we only can be saying it if by examining our own lives, we can say, here is the fruit which proves what I say. Here are the actions which say, this fellow isn't just a guy who gets up and says one thing one day and one thing the next. So we find as we look at our passage that it is important for our words to be in keeping with our deeds. We find as we look at our passage that we must not say that we trust in Christ unless there is fruit to illustrate it. But is it enough to say, I believe in Jesus Christ? Is it enough to say, I believe in Jesus Christ? Well, the example that is given in our passage is this. There are many persons who believe in Jesus Christ and who have more accurate theology than you or I who do not love Him, who in fact hate Him and fight Him every step of the way. The demons. And He says it so explicitly and it is... um, In verse 19 He says, You believe that there is one God. Great. You believe that there is one God. That's great. Good theology. But even the demons believe that. And their reaction to their belief is that they shudder in fear. So we see that as we talk about belief and recognize that others around us talk about belief in Jesus Christ, the theology is not what counts. The question is, first off, do we have the theology? Do we believe in God? But secondly, the only way to measure that is How do we treat him? As you look at the example of what Abraham did, we see that the ways in which we are to treat God, our Lord, are by obedience to him that is carried out in self-sacrifice. If you and I truly do believe in Jesus Christ, then we will be giving up of our lives to do what he wants. How do we see this in Abraham's life? 
Well, God said to him, Abraham, get up in the morning and take your son, your only son. The one that I gave you was a promise that you would be a great nation. Take him, go up the mountain, and I want you to kill him for me. I want you to sacrifice your son for me. And Abraham got up early the next morning and he headed out. He walked up that mountain. He left the servants behind. He had his son take the sticks. He got to the top of that mountain. He tied his son. He laid him on the altar. He raised his arm in the, with, the, with the knife in it. And just before he struck, the angel of the Lord said, Stop. If our belief is genuine, we will be sacrificing those things that are dearest to us in obedience to Christ. Now, as we find in Scripture, we are told many things that are to characterize the lives of believers. The first thing that has to happen is we have to be listening. We must be listening. We must be examining God's Word to find out what He is telling us. All of these parallels, and over the last couple of weeks you've realized how much I've been thinking about the role of a parent because we've been thrown into the role of parents so suddenly. And so I've been talking a lot about the, the relationship of parents and kids because it's just been a floodgate opening up and water's rushing down. What do you say to your children <coughs> if they say, I know mommy, I know daddy, I know, I know, I know, I know. And they keep on talking <coughs> and you say, close the door. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And they head off the other way. They don't close the door. Say, no, hold it. Stop right here. <laughs> you obviously were not listening. You said you were. You said you cared. You said you wanted to do what I told you to do, but you weren't listening. So for you and me, as if we truly are and claim to be children of the Heavenly Father, then we must be listening. We must be trying to find out, what does He want me to do? What is He asking of me? And then, when he tells us, the response has to be, yes, sir. Heavenly Father, I will do what you ask. <clears throat> now, I guess you, you, you bring it down to a final test in this passage. You find on the one hand, Abraham and Rahab, and they said they trusted in God, and they did, they did their best. Abraham might as well have sacrificed his son. Rahab risked her life for the spies because she believed in God and trusted in Him. But then on the other hand, these people had right theology. And then on the other hand, you have the demons who also have right theology. About Abraham, it is said that he was a friend of God's. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful picture? What is said about the demons who also have right theology? They shudder. You think of the demons in Scripture who came in contact with Jesus Christ. There was dreadful fear in their hearts. And so I think you and I have a final test. If we say we believe in Jesus Christ, where do we stand? Are we a friend? Are we our mortal enemy? Are we afraid that He is going to destroy us? Do we love Him and know that He loves us? Ask yourselves these questions. Examine your life by the magnifying glass that is given to us in Scripture, that our deeds are the true measure of our convictions.
Because whatever we say, regardless of what we say, regardless of how frequently we say it, the title of the sermon speaks the whole thing. Your life matches your convictions. If you were convicted that Jesus is God, but that he is someone to be feared, then you will live out a life of shuddering in fear of him. If you were convicted that Jesus is God and he is someone who is willing to take you into his arms in love and compassion, then you will live out a life which will be a blessing to others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would impress your lessons from Scripture upon our hearts, that you would teach us what it means to love you as our Heavenly Father, that we might be held in your arms, that we might be called your friends even as Abraham was, that we might, might not find ourselves, Lord, regardless of what good deeds we think we are doing. The demons, Lord, have right theology and do things that they are convinced are right. But because they are wrong with regard to you, Lord, they spend and will spend eternity suffering for the fact that they failed to embrace you. Lord, show us your way. In Jesus' name, amen.